Hey everyone, welcome back to the podcast. I'm so proud that you came in to listen. If you're new here, welcome here for the very first time. Proud that you found the podcast and and hope that you'll be a permanent listener of the podcast. Um, Right at the top of the podcast, I always like to say, do not put yourself in danger. If you're in any kind of danger, get in a safe place, get a safety plan, get with your local advocacy company, get with the organization that will help you, um, you know, if you need to dial um, for assistance, you know 911. So if you just need an advocate to talk to, my recommendation is the National Domestic Violence Hotline number. That number is 1-800-799-7233. They are trained advocates on the other end. However, they stay very busy and you may not get um, an advocate. So Another great spot for information would be domesticshelters.org. You can go onto their website. You can Google shelters and different information. This podcast is also featured on domesticshelters.org. So you can listen to the podcast through there and you can find us. So also um, there are crisis lines in your state. So statewide uh, United States. And I know that my next guest is from Canada I do not know um, about the crisis line numbers in Canada, but but Google, Google for information. Um, you know, if, if you get into a spot and you really don't know what to do, I mean, social media, just being online, you can find just about anything that you need to find. Okay. So today's guest is a survivor and an advocate for domestic violence. Her name is Cher Obadiah. Did I say it right? You did, yes. Oh, yay. So, um, Miss Cher, um, I'm going to just ask you, you know, just to tell your story to uh, to the listeners, you know, tell them about how you were able to survive domestic violence and where you're at today and, and how that um, kind of turned into you being an advocate for DV. Um, so go ahead. Well, first of all, Misty, thank you so much for having me on your podcast. I I really admire what you're doing. It's just such, such important work. And I'm really honored to be a part of it and to come on and to share my story as well and to offer that you offer this platform for survivors to share some of the things that they did to sort of bring themselves back to self. And so I'm really an advocate today when it comes to that. I like to be able to share with others what I did. Um, things that uh, I did to bring myself back to self. Um, But I will share with you uh, my story and how it all happened. Um, I I like to say that I was forgiving to a fault. And I know that that's really common for people that get caught up in domestic violence because we're, we're designed to be compassionate and empathetic and And then when we get into these situations where something happens and then our partners can be very deeply remorseful and then we can feel that it resonates, but then then it happens again. So I found myself in this cycle of just being, I get it, I understand. In the indigenous communities, we have residential schools, we have a lot of uh, colonial um, assimilation policies that caused a lot of issues and a lot of woundedness. So for me, I understood that about my partner and his upbringing. So forgiving to a fault was uh, something that I can own in this situation that happened. And one of the things that I did that just by nature, I started to write poetry. And I know that for a lot of people, there's an inability to explain to your partner how you're feeling. 
because it will be taken as criticism. And then that can leave you invalidated. So I went out in nature and I wrote on my phone poetry and I found nature to be very restorative. And so I would write, get everything out I needed to get out. And then I would return back home again, feeling more full, feeling more settled. And then if something happened again, I would go out and I would write again. So we did eventually end up splitting and it was just not a sustainable situation. But what happened at that time is my writing shifted to what I call healing and transformation. So my focus shifted from him, how can I be more trauma-informed, how can I help us get along better, to what? how did I go down that rabbit hole? How do I understand my own psychology better? Because I felt insane. I know that there's a, something called trauma bond. So people get caught up in this trauma bond of returning. I now refer to that as addiction. I like to say, hi, my name is Cher, and I'm a recovering addict. And my drug of choice was my ex. Because when you look at addictions, and you look at domestic violence, it really is just grasping for emotional self soothing, even though there's negative outcomes, and you do it anyway, is the very definition of addiction. And so when I started to understand that, and it's now looked at as a disease, I started to understand my own insanity a little bit better. So again, my writing had shifted at that time. And then um, I started setting some markers for myself. I know that it feels like um, a mountain that's immovable, that you just cannot move this mountain. You don't know where to begin. It just feels too overwhelming. And what I can say is that when you sort of chunk it down to setting markers and then hitting those markers was something that was very liberating for me. And eventually I was able to sort of climb my way up and out. In the beginning, it doesn't even feel that way. It feels immovable. But I want people to know and understand that they have this fortitude within that's always been there. So uh, my writing did shift to what then I call enlightenment and empowerment because I started to really look at myself in a spiritual sense and getting connected to everything. I started to have a really deep reverence for everything and everyone around me and having a deep gratitude. And so I just feel as though I've never walked so lightly on Mother Earth as I do today. And that's through poetry and writing. So I would really encourage people to whatever it is that works for you to really sink into that and to bring yourself back to self. Did you want me to read some of it? Uh, you can, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Um, so I did create a book out of it. Um, I like to say I have these loudmouth inner guides and after I had all of this poetry, I felt like I documented my own becoming because the beginning, uh, I would email them to myself. So I had this file folder of writing and the beginning ones were really sad. And then the healing and transformation stage and then the empowerment and enlightenment stage. So I pulled uh, 20 from the hurt. 20 from the transformation and 20 from enlightenment and empowerment. And I put it in a book called from shame to shine. And so, yeah, it's a bit of a difficult beginning, but if you hang in there as some really powerful stuff. Um, so I put some markers on them. I'm just going to grab one. I don't even know which one I'm going to pop open to here. I always do that. Um, let me see here. Here's one called, uh, 
dangerous driver that people uh, in my situation might relate to because I always found that whenever I was in the car, it felt like the worst place to have to go through a trigger response because there's literally nowhere to go. So um, I did end up writing about that. Um, it's called Dangerous Driver. Um, there's something comforting about the water tower in a tiny town and the crops that look up at it. My car wheels past fields, small places, wide spaces, until the gluttony of his history drives us to misery. His 10-year-old trauma at the wheel, beating the brakes to hammer a point. My thoughts shaken out like an old etch-a-sketch. I cover my ears to ignore. This angers him more. The confined space, the worst place to pollute with his past. I feel cemented in, nowhere to go, except silence. He, sp he speeds down the road, disrespect racing across his tongue, his blame rushing through me, my energy wafting out the window. The day falls down, darkness on a clear August afternoon. I slip between the seats to the back seat. He jerks the wheel. I topple onto the dog. He yells at the windshield, you'll never understand my life, you weren't there. What he doesn't understand is I live it because he brought it here. So I know that um, that I've talked to other people about that and they they also would agree that being in the car and having someone's trauma response um, in a vehicle, um, I've known people to just like roll right out. It's just just something that because we're designed to protect our emotional and mental state is so, so critical. And I feel like that often gets forgotten about because we carry a lot of shame and we carry a lot of blame. Mm -hmm. And when you realize that what you're actually doing, so I felt like I was letting myself down. I just felt like I made some really poor decisions. I, you know what? I'm just actually, I'm going to read that one too. Rather than just explain it, I'll just read it because, um, and I know at the beginning you uh, put out some numbers for counselors to reach out if you need help. And there's one poem in the book that my editor felt didn't really fit the flow because it's all poetry. And this one is just a conversation. But it was a powerful conversation because I was guilting myself and I was shaming myself. And why did I stay? And I made poor decisions and I ruined my life. And by the end of the conversation, I had shifted that mindset and I felt like it was a powerful conversation to include. It's just a short one. All of these are all very quick and short. So a conversation with my counselor. According to your ex-partner, you made your own adult decisions. I did. Some poor ones. Do you feel you let yourself down? I know that I did. Did you fear your partner's temper? Yes, absolutely. Did his anger affect your decisions? Yes, I avoided upsetting him. Were you worried that he would hurt you? Well, emotionally, yes. I called it crossing over. When that happened, there was no stopping him. Did his behavior cause you to keep quiet about things you wanted or needed? Yes. If I thought he was going to get mad, it wasn't worth it. So he manipulated your adult decisions with his temper. Yes, he definitely did. You feared his reactions and became submissive to keep the peace. Yes. Is protecting your peace and emotional safety letting yourself down? No, it's not. 
do you think walking on eggshells is love? No, that's the opposite of love. You made choices out of fear and for emotional safety. How do you feel about your adult decisions now? Like I self-abandoned in order to stay safe and that's never okay. And so you see by the end of that conversation, I was I had shifted because one of the most important things that we could protect about ourselves is our emotional safety. And I don't know if you've seen the, um, there's a triangle with our, our hierarchy of needs and right at the bottom, it's food and shelter and water is like the main foundational thing. But honestly, if you don't have good mental health, you're not, you don't feel safe, then you don't even care if you live under the brick. You don't even care what you eat. So ultimately, that is the most important thing. And so that is what I was protecting. If there was going to be any sort of freak out, I just wanted it calm. I was running out the door, carrying my shoes in my hands, running down the street. So after guilting myself and understanding I did the absolute right thing, I was protecting myself. So that's the best that I could do in that moment. And so I didn't have children but a dog at the time. And so I really guilted myself about that as well but I think that we can't really get upset with ourselves for learning the lessons that we're learning while we're still here I mean we're not born with all the answers so as we arrive here and we're learning lessons along the way and shaming ourselves for that while we're still learning is not helpful and it's not growth so that's also one of the things that was really helpful for me. Um, did you have any questions up to this point? Yeah. So, yeah. So I, I found it interesting, you know, when you were going back and forth with your therapist and, you know, as an advocate, that's kind of what advocates do whenever, you know, they have women who talk to them about domestic violence, you know, I mean, a lot of times women feel so, so much guilt, like you were talking about the guilt that yeah. a lot of times, you know, it's all about, you know, protecting themselves. They they just they stay for certain reasons and then they guilt themselves and shame themselves to the point to where a lot of that keeps them where they are they're at. And if they have children, like you were saying, you didn't have children but you had a, a pet and you you know, you guilted yourself over that. You know, a lot of times women do stay for the kids' sake. I mean they think, okay, well he's not abusing the children and he's a good dad, right? So, you know, even if it's not physical, if it's just psychological and mental, you know, he's mentally and psychologically abusing the mom and, and there's kids involved. And a lot of times the women will stay for that reason because they're, you know, they're guilting themselves or they're, they're blaming themselves for, for, you know, for whatever reason, for that reason, because they're just, they're just going through the motions, you know, they're just staying and going through the motions because they don't want to pull the kids out because it's going to be a guilt thing. Then they're going to feel shame because they took the father away from the children or, you know, and different things like that. And they don't want to relocate because the kids are in school and they're steady, you know. Um, so they just go through it. They just go through it. And a lot of women do that. And and I think that, you know, some women who've been in these relationships for 20, 30 years even, they stay. They stay because they had children with these people, with this person. I know. And then, yeah, and then they don't want to to pull their kids away from the school or from their friends or, you know, from their father, you know, and, 
you know, I agree. Both children need to have both parents. Okay. I agree a hundred percent because I didn't have a dad growing up. My dad got killed. Um, but at the end of the day, children have to live in a healthy situation or they need to be in a healthy situation. Toxic, um, toxicity with, with between two people. It's not, it's not a good environment. It's not. Just That's isn't, right. and especially if if one spouse is being abusive to another spouse, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Now we're talking about energy that the kid, the kids aren't. They say the kids aren't involved, or they're not going to harm my kids. But right. there's an energy in the environment that most certainly is affecting them. And if you're staying so that the kids can have this both parent situation, mm -hmm. then what you're doing, you're teaching them how to self abandon your own spirit. And that's not really what you want to do. You're doing this for them, but you wouldn't want this for them. You wouldn't want your own child to put themselves in a situation where they're suffocating their own spirit for the sake of other people. Right. And while it might be tumultuous for a little while in the beginning, that at least it's not years and years and years and years of now conditioning that as Adam have to undo all of those knots. Right. Absolutely. Yeah, and I liked it when you were talking, or I, I was actually a little bit enthused by when you had said addiction, you know. I've never actually heard that term when, when you're talking about trauma bond, the addiction part's never yeah. even mentioned. Do you know what I mean? Like, So that's right. kind of yeah. like a new type, you know, um, thing that I've heard anyone say. Well, it looks like an addiction. And, you know, looking back on my situation, course it was a lot of i was young but i remember just being what do you call that besides addiction like i was upset it was almost like i was obsessed with him yes like an obsession because well and and too you know i was often thinking well he's gonna change he's gonna change i'm gonna he loves i know that that good part of him's gonna come back like we're going to get to that good, that good time, you know, because when, when times were good, they were good. But then when they were really bad, they were really bad, you know. That's so common, isn't it? Yeah. yeah everybody yeah. wants to back to that. Yeah. Just fighting to back to that normal, but mm -hmm. fighting all the time to get to normal isn't normal. Absolutely. So it's, yeah, it's um something in the beginning that I also learned is called a, a core belief. And so even when there's compelling evidence to the opposite, that they're not healthy for you, that they are toxic, when we have that compelling evidence, we still have that in our in our minds that that's not who they really are. Who they really are is the person I met in the beginning. So that's when a core belief was being instilled. And that core belief has to be uprooted. I mean, and that's tricky because now we're talking about the foundation of who we are as a person. So I often refer this to... When we talk about politics or we talk about religion, people get really up in arms about those. Those are topics you just really can't talk about without upsetting people. And that's because you're not talking about politics or religion. You are now talking about core beliefs, which is now foundational brick and mortar of who that person is. You're now offending the human being, the person, who they are. You're not talking about a topic anymore. That's why it gets so tricky. And when it comes to domestic violence, in the beginning, you're instilling in yourself this core belief that they're a good person. So even when you have evidence that they're not, you're going back to that core belief. No, I know who they are. They are a good person. But the truth is, this is who they are. 
they are living through their woundedness 24 7 and some of it might be okay and some of it might be fine but you're living on the edge of a trigger and mm. you don't know and that's a very vulnerable way to live absolutely so unless they're aware, unless they're aware of their own triggers and what they are and they're doing a lot of deep work on that it's just you're going to be on eggshells all the time or you're going to self-abandon or you're going to be like how can i minimize their mood and that's not your job to minimize their mood um how can i do something differently so that i'm not triggering them it doesn't have anything to do with you my counselor said one time if you want to walk beside your partner and they want to work on insecurities or whatever it is that particular trigger is if they want to work on that you can tell them that you will be the friend by their side to work on that but you're not changing anything about yourself so if i'm talking to someone that's upsetting him that's his not mine that's his work if he wants to work through that i'll be the friend he needs to hold his hand as he works through it but i am not changing anything about myself that's the thing that's where we self-abandon and that's where we get back to the whole emotional well-being and emotional safety we will self-abandon because it's more important for us to have that inner peace and that emotional safety so i mean this is just a heck of a thing i really learned a lot about yeah. the human condition mm -hmm. i had to unpack it for myself because i felt insane i'm like why am i going back this is toxic <laughs> right yeah and you know and, and i really don't think that people get it like it's just like well i know they don't i mean a lot of people a lot of it's because for one lack of education about uh trauma uh lack of, of education about why abusers abuse because oftentimes people always say well why did she why didn't she leave instead of that question we should be asking why is he abusing her why is he abusive right instead of pointing the finger at the victim and saying well why doesn't she just leave that's the ultimate question all people have at the beginning. They always say that instead of throwing shame or blame at the victim, we need to ask the question, why is he hitting her? Why is he abusing her? Why is he cussing her out? Because, you know, the eggs were too runny for breakfast or, you know, his clothes didn't get starched the right way or just different things like that. No one ever asked the abusers why they do what they do. So it's just so backwards in the world of, of domestic violence and abuse to women, um, you know, and then women are like um, painted as weak, you know, weak or whatever. But, and I know that abuse also happens to men, you know, it's not as prevalent. It's not as much though, as women are abused. Women are abused a lot more than men are, you know, um, the statistics show that. So, you know, it, it's just, it's very complex. And it's like, I think that all of the, the wisdom, all the, the advocates that I do know, a lot of them will refer to domestic violence as an onion. There are so many different layers of domestic violence and, and, you know, so many things that we have to learn. And there was something that was emailed to me the other day and I forgot what it was called. And it wasn't trauma bond, but it was triangle. It, I'll have to look it up and I'll have to, we'll have to get back on that. I can't say it on the podcast because I forgot it, but it's a new term. It's a new terminology, a new term that's being said in domestic violence that I have not heard yet. So this is even new for me. And I feel like that I learn something new all the time. Like I said, it's like an onion. There's so many different layers. Yeah. 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 
I know, and you really hit the nail on the head there when you talk about the general population, even very smart, well-educated, suit-wearing people in the community will say, I would just leave. Mm-hmm. And that is so common. And that was me. I did say that. I would never put up with that. I would just leave. And then I did put up with it. So yeah. this is what caused me to do the deep dive and do a lot of work into the human condition. And, and people just are not taught this. And so it's one of my mandates to, to really help people understand that if that is what you're thinking, then you are unconsciously lending to the problem of domestic violence. Because if you're saying that, you're adding shame to the person who's already shaming themselves. Mm. If, oh, I would leave. If they're in earshot of hearing you say that, and you're now already shaming yourself, you most certainly are going to not say anything. You're going to just quiet down. You're not going to, people are going to shame me. But we need to normalize the conversation. We need people to talk about it so that they're not shaming themselves because if they do that that's going to lead to silence and then it's going to lead to depression and then we're going to get into suicides it just is a rabbit hole we don't as a society want to go down so people really need to understand that they're lending to suicides when they say things like i would just leave we really got to get the research out there and allow people to share exactly what you're doing on this podcast without shame, without guilt, just I don't own any of that. It's not mine to own. What I did need to own was how did I go down that rabbit hole? What sort of choices did I make that I could alter about myself? What's missing within myself that caused me to continue to grasp outside myself? What was I looking, what was I seeking to fulfill? Those are really, really critical questions. And I think when it comes to victimhood, people don't want to take any sort of ownership at all my counselor said well what can you own in all of this and I'm like are you crazy I'm not owning anything he brought all of his craziness and and woundedness into my life and all I did was try to be compassionate and understanding and then I got caught up in all of this I didn't do anything but then she said what was your two percent out of the hundred there must be two percent and so I thought about that and I was like well I guess I can get behind two percent like I don't know, there's got to be a reason for things. And so then we started getting into, yeah, I guess I did people please a little bit. Yep, I guess I did sort of push some of the red flags to the wayside. Yep, I guess I did sort of not, wasn't great with my boundaries. And so that 2% started to go to 4, started to go to 5. And it's like, oh, damn, I'm really getting called out on my own stuff here. So that's what did it because if I didn't do that work and I didn't figure out how I went down that rabbit hole in the first place, I was at risk of it happening again. And I for sure was not interested in that. It was the most tumultuous and emotionally upsetting time in my life. I had gone from being a, I was a a touring actor at one point and I went to school for journalism. I was a reporter for the news and then I was uh, starting my own production company. I worked at another production company for five years and then I went, got into this relationship where I now have no job, no money, no career, self-loathing, depressed. I didn't even know that this could happen to people. Mm. And so I think that we it's just really needed to understand what went wrong how did that occur? And so I just became obsessed with, you know, sort of 
falling in love with my own self evolution. You know, instead of seeking love elsewhere, it's like, I'm going to fall in love with my own evolution. And so that became um, something that was really, really powerful and transformative. Absolutely. Um, Yeah. We're not really, we don't need anything to, to make us whole outside of ourselves. Sure. Um, but we're always grasping and it still, it, it baffles me to this day that people think that they need a million dollars to be happy. And it's just, that's, that's a fallacy. Right. You can still that and get to the penthouse and still want to jump off the balcony. That's true. It really, yeah. it comes down to emotional well-being and uh, an inner vitality that is true wealth. Yeah. And so when we do, and we can find those those holes within what's missing within myself so i hate to interrupt you miss share but we got like a minute left and and right before the minute right before the minute i want to say let's let's just say where can they find you um give a little bit of information about where your stuff's located before we hang up yes okay so it's www.shareobadiah.com C-H-E-R-O-B-E-D-I-A-H. And I just want people to know that there's nothing wrong with you. You're not broken or unworthy or unlovable. You just need to maybe tweak your self-talk a little bit and believe because the caterpillar knows nothing about becoming the butterfly. Thank you, Misty. Oh, thank you so much, Miss Sherry. Hey, thank you guys for coming and listening. I wish we had more time, but our time is up right now. But y'all go check out her website. Go find her work. She's an amazing human being. Thank you guys so much for listening. We'll talk to you on the next podcast. Bye.